This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple choice questions related to articular cartilage, elbow arthritis, and THA revision, which are three topics that we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. We'll start with articular cartilage. And the first question reads, what is the main biologic effect of agrican in cartilage? And the choices are one, extracellular matrix protein involved in the organization of collagen, two, proteoglycan involved in the hydrophilic behavior of cartilage, three, cartilage matrix protein that plays a role in cartilage tissue organization, four, collagen component responsible for stability, and five, non-collagenous extracellular matrix protein that regulates chondrocyte proliferation. So agrican binds hyaluronic acid to attract water, which accounts for its hydrophilic property. It is the predominant proteoglycan in cartilage. It contains a large number of negatively charged sequences that attract water called sulfated glycosaminoglycan chains. It's the N-terminal globular domain of agrican that binds hyaluronin to form huge aggregates. Together with its chondroitin sulfate chains, they help create a hydrophilic viscous gel that decreases the coefficient of friction as well as to help absorb compressive loads. Ulrich Vinte et al. reviewed the biology of articular cartilage. They report that matrix metalloproteinases and agrokinases play a major role in agrican degradation and their production is upregulated by mediators associated with joint inflammation and overloading. So the answer to this question is two, agrican in cartilage is a proteoglycan involved in the hydrophilic behavior of cartilage. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, extracellular matrix protein involved in the organization of collagen is incorrect because that describes the biologic function of decorin. Answer three, cartilage matrix protein that plays a role in cartilage tissue organization is incorrect because that's the biologic effect of matrilin one. Answer four, collagen component responsible for stability is incorrect because that describes the biologic effect of type 9 collagen. And answer five, non-collagenous extracellular matrix protein that regulates chondrocyte proliferation is incorrect as that describes the biologic effect of cartilage oligomeric matrix protein. Moving on to the next question, a researcher studies growth factors that have positive effects on cartilage healing. In vivo and in vitro experiments are performed with growth factor A. The properties of growth factor A include one, it is the most widely investigated growth factor in cartilage repair, two, it increases extracellular matrix synthesis in cartilage and mesenchymal stem cells, and three, it triggers synovial proliferation and fibrosis. Which of the following is most likely to be growth factor A? And the choices are one, interleukin one, two, tumor necrosis factor alpha, three, fibroblast growth factor, four, transforming growth factor beta one, and five, platelet-derived growth factor. So TGF-beta one stimulates the synthesis of extracellular matrix and causes synovial proliferation and fibrosis. TGF-beta is the most thoroughly investigated member of the TGF-beta superfamily. This group includes TGF-beta one, BMP2, and BMP7. Besides the activities that we just listed, TGF-beta-1 also stimulates chondrocyte synthetic activity and decreases the catabolic activity of IL-1. So the correct answer to this question is that growth factor A is most likely transforming growth factor beta-1. 
Fortier et al. reviewed the role of growth factors in cartilage repair and modification of osteoarthritis. They found that members of the TGF-beta superfamily, FGF family, IGF-1, and PDGF have all been investigated as possible treatment augments in the management of chondral injuries and early arthritis. They concluded that more research was necessary before routine application. So to quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1 is incorrect as IL-1 is catabolic and leads to cartilage breakdown rather than synthesis. Answer 2 is incorrect as TNF-alpha is a pro-inflammatory cytokine and it does not lead to cartilage synthesis. Answer 3 is incorrect because although FGF2 increases proteoglycan synthesis and cell proliferation, it also increases inflammation and osteophyte formation and does not aid in the healing of cartilage defects. FGF18 is less well studied. Answer 5, PDGF has no adverse or positive effects on cartilage when used in vivo. Much evidence on its role is extrapolated from the effects of PRP. Moving on to the next question, what is the principal type of lubrication brought on by Lubricin? And the choices are 1. Hydrodynamic, 2. Boundary, 3. Squeeze film, 4. Elastohydrodynamic, and 5. Weeping. So Lubricin is a mucinous glycoprotein that is critical to lubrication in joints and other tissues. It improves boundary lubrication in joints. So the correct answer to this question is 2. Boundary. Other organs, such as tendon sheaths and pericardium, are also affected by genetic deficiencies in the lubricin molecule. Hydrodynamic lubrication occurs when fluid separates two surfaces when one is sliding on another. Weeping lubrication occurs when fluid shifts out of cartilage with loading and separates the surface by hydrostatic pressure. Squeeze film occurs when the layer of fluid is slowly being squeezed from between two surfaces, and elastohydrodynamic lubrication occurs with deformation of a surface moving on another and a thin film separates the surface. Moving on to the next question, which of the following statements regarding articular cartilage is true? And the choices are 1. Cartilage is an isotropic material. 2. Most of the water in articular cartilage exists in the deep layer next to the calcified cartilage. 3. Cartilage only heals if the injury does not pass through the tide mark. 4. Calcified cartilage is the only place that type 4 collagen is found. And 5. Cartilage exhibits stress shielding of the solid matrix components. So cartilage exhibits significant stress shielding of the solid matrix components due to its high water content, the non-compressibility of water, and the structural organization of collagen and proteoglycans. So the correct answer to this question is 5. Cartilage exhibits stress shielding of the solid matrix components. Cartilage is composed of a permeable porous matrix and 65 to 80% of the total weight of articular cartilage is made up of water. A pressure gradient causes the water to flow through the porous permeable solid matrix. Significant flow of fluid through the solid matrix requires high hydrodynamic pressures because of the low permeability of the solid matrix. The other answers are incorrect because cartilage is anisotropic. Most of the water is located in the superficial layers. It only heals if the injury does not pass through the tide mark. Type 10 collagen is found in calcified cartilage and is thought to be involved in mineralization. Type 4 collagen is found in the basal lamina. Moving on to the next question, articular cartilage is divided in zones with specific arrangements of the collagen framework and proteoglycan content. 
The superficial zone is characterized by collagen oriented, and the choices are one, randomly and low proteoglycan content, two, randomly and high proteoglycan content, three, parallel to the surface and low proteoglycan content, four, parallel to the surface and high proteoglycan content, and five, perpendicular to the surface and low proteoglycan content. So understanding collagen orientation is important to understand articular cartilage damage and disease. Articular cartilage acts as a fiber-reinforced composite matrix able to withstand and distribute physiologic loads without mechanical failure. Collagen fibers form a complex framework with a distinctive cross-sectional architecture. The superficial zone is characterized by collagen fibers oriented parallel to the joint surface and a relatively low concentration of proteoglycans. So the correct answer to this question is three, parallel to the surface and low proteoglycan content. The transitional zone is characterized by larger diameter collagen fibers oriented in a more random manner with a higher concentration of proteoglycans. The deep zone has the largest collagen fibers with a vertical arrangement. It has the highest proteoglycan concentration. And calcification of the matrix is seen in the zone of calcified cartilage. Moving on to the next question, during the first stage of osteoarthritis, which of the following processes predominates? And the choices are one, loss of articular cartilage proliferative response, two, release of mediators by chondrocytes that stimulate anabolic and catabolic response, three, decreased proteoglycan and agrocan concentration and increased water content, four, decline in chondrocyte anabolic response, and five, increased synthesis of matrix macromolecules. So articular cartilage degeneration and ensuing osteoarthritis can be divided into three stages. In the first stage, the water content increases and proteoglycan aggregation and agrocan concentration are both decreased. Increased water content tends to decrease the stiffness of the matrix, rendering cartilage tissue more susceptible to further mechanical damage. In the second stage, chondrocytes detect tissue damage and respond by releasing mediators to increase proliferation. Clusters or clones of proliferating chondrocytes are hallmark of the response to articular degeneration. In the third stage, both the proliferative response and anabolic activity are decreased. In this stage, the loss of articular cartilage is more evident and leads to clinical signs of degenerative joint disease. But the answer to this question is three, decreased proteoglycan and agrocan concentration and increased water content are involved in the first stage of osteoarthritis. Moving on to the next question, which of the following zones of articular cartilage has the highest concentration of proteoglycans? And the choices are one, superficial, two, transitional, three, deep, four, calcified, and five, tide mark. So the fundamental structure of normal adult articular cartilage is divided into four zones, superficial, transitional, deep, and calcified. These layers vary in chondrocyte morphology, size and orientation of collagen bundles, and water, as well as proteoglycan content. The deep zone has the highest concentration of proteoglycans and the lowest concentration of water. The tide mark is a boundary between the calcified and uncalcified layers of articular cartilage. But the answer to this question is three, the deep zone has the highest concentration of proteoglycans. Moving on to the next question, in normal adult articular cartilage, what percentage of the total volume is occupied by chondrocytes? And the choices are one, 2%, two, 
3, 30%, 4, 75%, and 5, 90%. So chondrocytes occupy approximately 2% of the total volume of normal adult articular cartilage. So the correct answer to this question is 1, 2%. 65 to 80% of the weight of articular cartilage is composed of water, depending on the load status at the surface. Chondrocytes are the only cells present within the cartilage matrix, which is composed largely of collagen, non-collagenous proteins, and proteoglycans. Chondrocytes are responsible for the synthesis and degradation of the cartilage matrix during embryonic development and maintenance of the adult cartilage. Moving on to the next question. Moderate distance running has what effect on knee articular cartilage in asymptomatic distance runners? And the choices are 1. Increased loss of collagen tensile integrity in the superficial zone. 2. Increased production of glycosaminoglycans. 3. Decreased collagen in the middle zone. 4. Loss of cartilage thickness that correlates with the total distance run during the course of adult life. And 5 collagen loss in the medial compartment and collagen increase in the lateral compartment. So articular cartilage in the knee adapts to exercise by increasing the glycosaminoglycan content. Increased glycosaminoglycan content is important to cartilage health. There is a higher glycosaminoglycan content in the lateral femoral cartilage compared to the medial femoral cartilage. Using T1 gadolinium enhanced MRI, the glycosaminoglycan content is seen to be increased in moderate distance runners. Moderate exercise may be a good treatment not only to improve joint symptoms and function, but also to improve the knee cartilage glycosaminoglycan content in patients at high risk of developing osteoarthritis. Moving on to the next question. The swelling pressure in cartilage is predominantly due to the association of exchangeable water with which of the following substances? And the choices are 1. Biglycan, 2. Type 2 collagen, 3. Type 9 collagen, 4. Agrocan, and 5. Vesican. So biglycan and versican are two of the small proteoglycans in cartilage. Biglycan plays a role in molecular association between cartilage and other molecules. Versican is more associated with the cell surface and plays multiple roles. Agrocan has a longer core protein with multiple keratin sulfate and chondroitin sulfate chains. The molecular weight is around 1 million. Agrocan aggregates on hyaluronic acid with link proteins. Agrocan can associate with 50 times its weight in water. The resulting swelling pressure is retained 20% by type 2 collagen. This results in the physiologic properties of articular cartilage. Type 9 collagen plays a role in matrix molecule association with type 2 collagen. But the correct answer to this question is 4. The swelling pressure in cartilage is predominantly due to the association of exchangeable water with agrocan. Moving on to the next question. Arthritic changes in cartilage is characterized by which of the following findings? And the choices are 1. Proteoglycan loss in the cartilage matrix. 2. Increased compressive modulus compared to normal cartilage. 3. Increased tensile modulus. 4. Decreased water content. And 5. Increase in the shear modulus. So experimental models of late-stage arthritis in animals demonstrated lower compressive modulus, higher permeability, and higher water content. There is proteoglycan loss within the matrix. A significant and progressive decrease in the tensile and shear modulus has been observed. But the correct answer to this question is 1. Arthritic change in cartilage is characterized by proteoglycan loss in the cartilage matrix. 
Moving on to the next question, which of the following substances makes up the majority by weight of the extracellular matrix for articular cartilage? And the choices are one, keratin sulfate, two, collagen type two, three, water, four, protein, and five, chondroitin sulfate. So the extracellular matrix consists of water, proteoglycans, and collagen. Water makes up the majority, again, approximately 65 to 80% of the wet weight. 95% of the collagen is type 2, with much smaller amounts of other collagens, including types 4, 6, 9, 10, and 11. The exact functions of these other collagens are unknown, but they are believed to be important in matrix attachment and stabilization of the diameter of collagen fibrils. Moving on to the next question, which of the following statements best describes the process of articular cartilage degeneration in osteoarthritis? And the choices are 1. In the second stage, there is decreased catabolic activity with less matrix breakdown. 2. In the second stage, there is less chondrocyte proliferation and decreased matrix production. 3. Matrix degradation includes increased proteoglycan production, more proteoglycan production, and longer glycosaminoglycan chains. 4. Cartilage degeneration may be initiated by inflammation, overload, or decreased matrix production. And 5. Chondrocyte repair responses improves with aging. So inflammation, overload, or decreased matrix production may lead to cartilage degeneration. During the second stage of articular cartilage degeneration with osteoarthritis, there is increased chondrocyte activity with proliferation and increased production of extracellular matrix. At the same time, there is an increase in catabolic activity with removal of damaged matrix to facilitate matrix remodeling. Chondrocyte repair response decreases with aging. Matrix degradation includes decreased proteoglycan production, less aggregation, and shorter glycosaminoglycan chains. But the answer to this question is 4. Cartilage degeneration may be initiated by inflammation, overload, or decreased matrix production best describes the process of articular cartilage degeneration in osteoarthritis. Moving on to the next question, a 32-year-old runner sustains a trimalleolar left ankle fracture. She undergoes open reduction in internal fixation and is kept non-weight-bearing after surgery. At two months, what changes will occur in the articular cartilage of both her knees as a result of her current weight-bearing regimen? And the choices are 1. Cartilage thickening in the left or ipsilateral knee and no change in cartilage thickness in the right contralateral knee. 2. Cartilage thinning in both knees. 3. Cartilage thinning in the left ipsilateral knee and no change in cartilage thickness in the right contralateral knee. 4. Cartilage thinning in the left ipsilateral knee and increased cartilage thickness in the right contralateral knee. And 5. Increased cartilage thickness in both knees. So after a period of offloading, the offloaded limb will experience cartilage thinning. The contralateral limb will not demonstrate any cartilage changes. So the correct answer to this question is 3 cartilage thinning in the left ipsilateral knee, and no change in cartilage thickness in the right contralateral knee. Physiologic loading of cartilage increases proteoglycan synthesis and cell proliferation and is chondroprotective. Joint immobilization leads to cartilage thinning, tissue softening, and reduced proteoglycan content, leading to cartilage erosion. Joint overuse leads to cartilage damage. Hinterwimmer et al. examined cartilage atrophy after partial load-bearing using quantitative MRI. They found cartilage thinning in all knee compartments. Greatest thinning was in the medial tibia, with the least thinning in the patella. 
there was no change in cartilage morphology in the contralateral knee. Sun reviewed the relationship between mechanical loading and cartilage degeneration. In osteoarthritis, cartilage breakdown occurs at the articular surface and is then fueled by synovial proteases and cytokines. In rheumatoid arthritis, synovial cells and macrophages are the source of degradative enzymes and incite cartilage destruction. Millward Sadler et al. examined mRNA levels following mechanical stimulation in normal and osteoarthritic chondrocytes. Normal chondrocytes showed increased agrocan mRNA and decreased matrix metalloproteinase 3 mRNA after stimulation. This chondroprotective response was absent in osteoarthritic chondrocytes. Moving on to the next question, which of the following biochemical changes are common to both aging cartilage and osteoarthritic cartilage? And the choices are 1. Increased water content, 2. Decreased collagen content and decreased modulus of elasticity, 3. Decreased proteoglycan content, 4. Increased chondroitin sulfate concentration, and 5. Decreased keratin sulfate concentration. So both aging cartilage and osteoarthritic cartilage share the common change of decreased proteoglycan content, and so the correct answer to this question is 3. Decreased proteoglycan content. The review article by Martin et al. states that osteoarthritis is not an inevitable consequence of aging, but rather aging increases the risk of osteoarthritis because of a decrease in the ability of chondrocytes to maintain and repair the tissue. Increased water content and chondroitin sulfate concentration are seen with osteoarthritis, but not with aging. Decreased collagen content, modulus of elasticity, and keratin sulfate concentration are also seen with osteoarthritis, but not aging. Moving on to the next question, in articular cartilage, interleukin-1 increases, and the choices are 1, matrix metalloproteinase, 2, proteoglycan synthesis, 3, collagen production, and 4, nitric oxide synthetase. So IL-1 stimulates matrix metalloproteinases that directly degrade cartilage, which corresponds to answer choice 1. It also stimulates enzymes such as cyclooxygenase 2 and nitric oxide synthetase, which further cause tissue catabolism and damage. Glucosamine has anabolic effects on proteoglycan synthesis and can also prevent tissue catabolism by preventing an IL-1 beta-induced decrease in proteoglycan synthesis. Transforming growth factor beta has chondroprotective functions and has been shown to increase both collagen and proteoglycan synthesis while inhibiting matrix degradation and cell proliferation. Insulin-like growth factor 1, or IGF-1, is produced by articular chondrocytes and increased collagen, as well as proteoglycan synthesis. It has a role in the development of osteoarthritis. Decreased expression of IGF-1 and increased binding proteins decrease the availability of the growth factors, accelerating tissue catabolism in arthritic cartilage. Moving on to the next question, the initiating cellular event in development of post-traumatic osteoarthritis is attributed to which of the following? And the choices are 1. Chondrocyte aging as the result of matrix degradation. 2. Chondrocyte death from apoptosis. 3. Cysteine protease inhibited chondrocyte destruction. And 4. Interleukin-2 mediated chondrocyte hypertrophy. So a relatively large percentage of patients sustaining intraarticular fractures develop post-traumatic arthritis despite surgical restoration of joint incongruity and alignment. 
fracture-related chondrocyte death, or apoptosis, concentrated along matrix cracks in the superficial layer of cartilage, has been linked to the pathogenesis of post-traumatic osteoarthritis. Apoptosis is accentuated by a series of aspartate-specific cysteine proteases. Inhibition of this cascade is a target of emerging pharmacological treatment options. So again, the correct answer to this question is two. Chondrocyte death from apoptosis is the initiating cellular event in the development of post-traumatic osteoarthritis. And the last question for this topic, a cartilage water content increase is the hallmark of which osteoarthritis stage? And the choices are one, pre-arthritis, two, early, three, late, and four, terminal. So the first stage of osteoarthritis is marked by an increase in water content secondary to disruption of the matrix framework. This is followed by an increase in chondrocyte anabolic and catabolic activity in response to tissue damage. Wnt-induced signal protein 1 increases chondrocyte protease expression. Failure to restore tissue balance ultimately leads to continued destruction and osteoarthritis. One hallmark of osteoarthritic cartilage is a reduced repair mechanism attributable to decreased chondrocyte response to growth factor stimulation. Mitochondrial dysfunction and increased production of reactive oxygen species may promote cell senescence, which is a progressive slowing of cellular activity. Microscopic evidence of cartilage degeneration begins with fibrillation of the superficial and transition zones, followed by disruption of the tide mark by subchondral blood vessels and eventual subchondral bone remodeling. This process ultimately leads to cartilage degradation with decreased water content in the late and terminal phases of osteoarthritis. Moving on to the next topic of elbow osteoarthritis, the first question reads, a 59-year-old man underwent interposition arthroplasty for osteoarthritis of the elbow nine years ago. Over the past year, the patient has had increasing pain and elbow instability. There is no clinical evidence of infection, and radiographs show no new bony process. What is the best option for this patient? And the choices are one, bracing, two, physiotherapy, three, cortisone injection, four, conversion to total elbow arthroplasty, and five, revision interposition arthroplasty. So in a series reported by Blaine and Associates, 12 patients were converted from interposition to total elbow arthroplasty, and this procedure was successful in 10 out of the 12 patients. So the correct answer to this question is four. In this patient with a failed interposition arthroplasty, conversion to total elbow arthroplasty is the best choice. Moving on to the next question. A 43-year-old man who works as a plumber has a painful, stiff elbow in his dominant arm. He notes that while he recalls no single event of injury, he thinks the many years of pulling wrenches and soldering pipes have resulted in his problem. He reports that he has pain with any motion in bending his arm and can no longer straighten his elbow. Examination reveals generalized swelling of the elbow, both medial and lateral, with a range of motion that lacks 45 degrees of extension and flexes to only 110 degrees. Pronation and supination are also limited to 45 degrees. Audible crepitus is perceived, but there is no instability. Radiographs reveal advanced osteoarthritis at the radiocapitellar and ulnohumeral joints with complete loss of articular cartilage. What is the most appropriate initial treatment option? And the choices are 1. Elbow fusion, 2. Radial head resection, 3. Total elbow arthroplasty, 4. Osteophyte resection and capsular release, and 5. 
physical therapy with dynamic extension and flexion splints. So osteoarthritis of the elbow is more common in the middle-aged laborer, such as this plumber, whereas rheumatoid arthritis is more common in older females. Treatment must respect the physical demands of the patient while trying to preserve joint motion and function with tolerable symptoms. Osteophyte resection and capsular release have offered many patients significant improvement in their symptoms while allowing them to return to most activities. The osteophyte resection and releases can be done effectively by an open or arthroscopic approach, whereas total elbow arthroplasty would likely result in better and more thorough pain relief, it would not tolerate the occupational demands of this particular individual. There is no role for physical therapy initially in the face of advanced painful arthritis associated with long-standing fixed joint contractures. Elbow fusion results in severe loss of function and its indication is rare and usually considered in the face of unmanageable sepsis. Radial head resection may improve symptoms related to the radial capitellar arthritis but would not improve range of motion or end range impingement pain. Also, radial head resection should be avoided in heavy laborers with elbow arthritis because it would lead to increased loads across the arthritic ulnohumeral joint. So again, the correct answer to this question is four, osteophyte resection and capsular release would be the best option in this patient. And the final question for this topic, elbow distraction interposition arthroplasty may be most appropriate treatment for which of the following patient profiles? And the choices are one, a 25-year-old woman with destructive juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, two, a 41-year-old male laborer with post-traumatic arthritis of the elbow, three, a 44-year-old woman with distal humerus osteonecrosis and collapse, four, a 65-year-old man with painful primary elbow osteoarthritis, and five, a 70-year-old sedentary woman with end-stage rheumatoid arthritis. So elbow interposition arthroplasty is reserved for younger, active patients who may otherwise be candidates for prosthetic replacement. Osteoarthritis, post-traumatic arthritis, and rheumatoid arthritis patients may all be candidates for interposition arthroplasty if bone stock is preserved and the elbow maintains inherent stability. Primary osteoarthritis may also be treated with ulnohumeral arthroplasty, otherwise known as the outer bridge procedure, or arthroscopic debridement with release. Patients with destructive juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and distal humerus osteonecrosis would better benefit from prosthetic replacement because of bone loss issues. But the correct answer to this question is two, a 41-year-old male laborer with post-traumatic arthritis of the elbow is the most appropriate for an elbow distraction interposition arthroplasty. Moving on to the final topic of THA revision, the first question reads, which of the following is true regarding the conversion of hip arthrodesis to total hip arthroplasty? And the choices are one, implant survivorship is greater than 95% at 20 years following conversion to arthroplasty. Two, conversion to arthroplasty should not be performed if arthrodesis is more than 15 years old. Three, function of the gluteus medius is predictive of ambulatory status. Four, rate of complication is equivalent to primary total hip arthroplasty. And five, incidence of nerve palsy is comparable to primary total hip arthroplasty. So hip arthrodesis is a viable solution for the very young laborer with debilitating hip disease. Conversion to total hip arthroplasty once the patient has become less active has been clinically successful in relieving adjacent knee and low back pain, although complications are more frequent than primary hip arthroplasty. 
incompetence of the gluteal muscle groups was predictive of poor ambulatory outcome. Preoperative EMG studies can be useful to evaluate the competence of the gluteal musculature prior to surgery. So the correct answer to this question is three, the function of the gluteus medius is predictive of ambulatory status in the context of conversion of a hip arthrodesis to a total hip arthroplasty. Joshi et al. reviewed 208 hip fusions converted to total hip arthroplasties. 79% reported minimal pain and good to excellent range of motion. Arthroplasty survival was 96% at 10 years, 93% at 15 years, and 73% at 20 years. Complications included nerve palsy in 7% of hips and heterotopic ossification in 14% of hips. Moving on to the next question, which of the following statements is true regarding the 30-year follow-up data obtained from the Charnley low-friction total hip arthroplasty? And the choices are 1. Acetabular component failure was the least common reason for revision surgery. 2. The number of revisions required for periprosthetic fractures was higher than that for deep infections. 3. Acetabular component failure was a more common reason for revision than deep infection. 4. Femoral component failure was a more common reason for revision than acetabular component failure. And 5. Deep infection was the most common reason for revision. So failure of the acetabular component was the most common reason for revision at 30 years for the Charnley low friction total hip arthroplasty. The Charnley low friction torque arthroplasty was introduced in 1962. It consisted of a 22 millimeter diameter metal head, a cemented femoral component, and a cemented ultra high molecular weight polyethylene acetabular component. Overall, the results were very good at 30 years with only 11.8% requiring a revision. Charnley et al. in 1972 reported the 4-7 to seven year results of 379 low friction total hip arthroplasties. Overall, their short-term results were very good with only two loose acetabular components, zero loose femoral components, and one late dislocation. Roblevsky et al. in 2009 reported the 30-year follow-up of 110 patients who underwent the low-friction total hip arthroplasty. 13 hips, or 11.8%, had to be revised. Of these, five were for problems with acetabular component, four were for loosening of both components, two were for deep infection, one was from a loose femoral component, and one was from a fractured femoral component. So the answer to this question again is three. Acetabular component failure was a more common reason for revision than deep infection in the Charnley low friction total hip arthroplasty. Moving on to the next question. A 67-year-old active man returns for routine follow-up 12 years after hip replacement. He has no hip pain. Radiographs revealed a well-circumscribed osteolytic lesion around a single acetabular screw. All hip components were perfectly positioned. Six months later, comparison radiographs show an increase in the size of the osteolytic lesion. A CT scan shows a well-described lesion that is 3 centimeters at its largest diameter and is localized around one screw hole with an eccentric femoral head. What treatment is appropriate assuming well-fixed, cementless total hip components exist? And the choices are 1. Revision of the polyethylene liner, removal of the screw, and debridement of the osteolytic lesion with or without bone grafting. 2. Revision of the acetabular component to a newer design without screws. 3. Removal of the screw, revision of the polyethylene liner, and stem cell injection into the lytic lesion. And 4. Removal of the offending screw from the metal socket and placement of a new polyethylene liner in the existing socket.
So with a well-fixed acetabular metal shell and a localized osteolytic lesion, good outcomes can be expected with liner revision in this clinical scenario with retention of the metal socket, assuming no damage to the components or other unexpected findings during revision surgery. Here, complete cup revision is not warranted considering the appropriate implant position. Buell and Associates reviewed 83 consecutive patients or 90 hips in which a well-fixed acetabular component was retained in clinical scenarios such as the one described. No hip showed recurrence or expansion of periacetabular osteolytic lesions. If the metal cup is unstable or if the osteolytic lesion is not amenable to debridement through the screw hole, acetabular component revision may be indicated. So the correct answer to this question is one, revision of the polyethylene liner, removal of the screw, and debridement of the osteolytic lesion with or without bone grafting is the appropriate treatment in this case, assuming well-fixed cementless total hip components exist. Moving on to the next question, a 68-year-old man reports hip pain 15 years after successful cementless total hip arthroplasty. Radiographs showed 3 millimeters of linear wear of the modular acetabular liner and a retroacetabular osteolytic lesion. Both the titanium femoral and acetabular components appear to be well fixed. The orthopedic surgeon recommends revision of the acetabular liner and femoral head. The patient is at increased risk for, and the choices are 1, dislocation, 2, periprosthetic fracture, 3, infection, and 4, progressive osteolysis. So isolated acetabular liner revision is frequently performed in cases of linear wear and periprosthetic osteolysis in the absence of acetabular component loosening. Many reports have documented an increased incidence of dislocation following this type of revision surgery. So the correct answer to this question is one, dislocation. The dislocation rate can be reduced by using a larger diameter femoral head at the time of revision. If the acetabular component is loose or malpositioned, it should be revised. If the locking mechanism is damaged, then a replacement liner may be cemented into the well-fixed shell. Numerous studies have shown that many osteolytic lesions will reduce in size or heal without bone grafting, and removal of the source of wear debris will arrest the progression of osteolysis. The risk of periprosthetic fracture and infection are lower than risk of dislocation in this setting. And the final question for this topic, a 70-year-old man is scheduled to undergo bearing surface revision for wear and osteolysis 10 years after cementless total hip arthroplasty. The femoral head is a 28-millimeter alumina oxide ceramic material. The components are in good position, and there is no evidence of fixation loosening of either component by radiograph or preoperative bone scan. What outcome is associated with isolated polyethylene exchange? And the choices are 1. Reduced risk for future wear and osteolysis with a larger femoral head. 2. Reduced risk for future wear and osteolysis with a cobalt chrome femoral head. 3. Similar risk for dislocation compared to primary total hip arthroplasty. And 4. Increased risk for dislocation compared to primary total hip arthroplasty. So the major complication associated with polyethylene exchange is postoperative dislocation. Maloney and Associates noted a dislocation rate of 11% in a study of 35 hips after such revision. Bauscher and Associates reported a 25% rate of dislocation in a study of 25 patients. Larger femoral heads result in higher volumetric wear in contrast to smaller diameter heads. Stem revision is not indicated because there is no fixation loosening. 
Moreover, stem biomaterial has no effect on polyethylene wear. So the correct answer to this question is four, increased risk for dislocation compared to primary total hip arthroplasty. That's all for this question session about articular cartilage, elbow arthritis, and THA revision. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.